Okay. Good morning, everyone. Um, everybody can hear me? Great. Um, so, welcome to the next panel, The Charterer's Perspective. My name is Corey Greenwald. I'm a senior counsel at Cloud & Co. in New York in the Marine and Shipping Group. Joining me on the panel today, we have an excellent group of speakers. To my left, we have George Wells, Global Head of Assets and Structuring at Cargill Ocean Transportation. Next to George, we have Jason Klopfer, Managing Director of Navigate Americas. And next to Jason, we have Mike Reardon, Manager of Global Strategy and Freight Trading at Phillips 66. And down on the end, we have Rasmus Nielsen, Global Head of Wet Freight at Trafigura Group. Um, these gentlemen are the stars of the show. I'm just here to hopefully set the table and get things moving. Our discussion today is gonna focus on industry trends and current and future challenges for charters in the dry bulk energy, commodity, and shipping markets. We're going to attempt to cover three topics. Current, the first being current market challenges and opportunities. The second, the charter owner relationship. And third, current market trends. Time permitting, we will take questions from the audience. If, uh, if we do run out of time, you can find us milling about today if there's any pressing issues you want to follow up on. Um, but without further ado, let's get started. My first question is going to be to Mike Reardon. So leading up to today's forum, we discussed, all of us, we discussed a number of issues presently facing charters in today's market. One that I found particularly interesting is the effect of geopolitical events on the market. Mike, can you provide your views on how geopolitical events, namely those in Venezuela, Libya, and I think Iran, are affecting the charterers market and the nature of the issues that you see arising? Yep, thanks. I think, the, uh, I think we're all aware of probably the big three geopolitical for oil and transportation, probably similar to the big three for any, any global issue. Starting with Venezuela, I think the, uh, the problem there is, is pretty well known, and it, that's the steady decline of oil production. Um, so it remains to be seen how the exports are allocated. We know that they ship a lot to China. But the, what's worth noting uh, for those not directly in the business is that the, the U.S. Gulf refiners and, the, and the, the complex they have, is a lot, a lot of that's designed to run on the heavy Venezuelan crude. So the, the impact there would be if the, if the production declined to the point where the U.S. Gulf Coast refiners could not get the, the heavy oil that the refineries are built to run. Uh, and with that same note, even though the U.S. is producing more and the frac oil and the shale oil is now significant numbers, um, most of the Gulf Coast refineries are not designed to run on this, and that's why you see our exports going up. We're producing more, but all the extra production is going right to export. In terms of Libya, I think you mentioned, it's, it's a bit of a different problem in that it's a, it's a random, it's a sporadic problem. Well, Venezuela is a, a steady, somewhat predictable decline. Uh, Libya can go from 600,000 barrels per day to 900,000 barrels per day back to 600,000 barrels per day. So if you try to position from a charter standpoint, if you try to position your trading patterns or, or take a time charter fleet to, to maybe move uh, Libyan oil, you might come up short for a couple of months because the oil that you get planned on moving isn't moving. And then lastly, uh, Iran, there's a lot of moving parts with Iran uh, in terms of the, the ton mile equation, which is 
really the important uh, predictor of freight, shall we say, on the demand side, that how, how much oil moves and how far it moves. Uh, so with Iran, you could actually, despite Iran uh, reducing their exports uh, due to sanctions, you could see a ton mile increase if those Iranian barrels are then sourced from a, f a further distance. So same barrels but further distance means you need more tonnage, a little bit of upward pressure on rates. There's one or two uh, smaller moving parts there with, with the full uh, replacement puzzle, shall we say. But all told, Iran is, is something that should have an uh, increased ton mile effect and therefore at some point upward pressure on rates. Thank you. Now, we just heard from Mike about volatility and uncertainty that can arise from geopolitical events, but that's certainly not the only thing that can cause volatility or uncertainty in the market. And I'd just like to ask uh, Jason to comment on what strategy charters, and in particular Navigate, um, are employing to respond to market uncertainties, and whether and how it is possible for charters to benefit from such market uncertainty and volatility. Thank you. Uh, I think it's important to note that navigate time charters and voyage charters vessels uh, opportunistically. Unlike the other panelists, we don't have a set cargo system um, to which we have to move commodities from point A to point B, but rather when we look to take advantage of market fundamentals and acquire tonnage from the market, it's very much because we think we've uh, uncovered value that others don't see and we can employ those vessels uh, in a profitable way. Um, as Mike has referred to, um, there are there's a lot of uncertainty today in the market. So whether you're talking about market uncertainty, operational uncertainty, regulatory uncertainty, um, for the first time in a very long time, um, we're talking more and more about the upside potential in the market on the back of all of, let's call it, general confusion. Um, you know, that will lead to higher volatility, most likely positive volatility, and provides an opportunity for people who have a large commercial infrastructure and the ability to take positions in the time charter market um, to go and acquire tonnage uh, that's undervalued. Um, and there's a mismatch between what the market thinks these vessels will earn over a given point of time and what they actually will earn. Um, for us, the strategy is certainly to lean heavily on a very large commercial infrastructure and basically information flow. Um, we feel as though a large commercial infrastructure um, where you're privy to better information um, and better timing of information allows you to judge inflection points and then acquire quality tonnage um, at a low point in the market cycle, um, undervalued tonnage. Um, and particularly high-quality tonnage that you can put against market fundamentals and, and profit from that. Great. Thank you, Jason. Um, I'll throw it to um, Rasmus to see, you know, we've heard from the Navigate perspective. Is there anything from um, your perspective at Trafigura with respect to strategies um, responding to volatility and uncertainty? Uh, very much so. Um, so a bit about traffic war, we, we do 4,000 fixtures a year, of which 3,000 is on the website. So we, we, I, I sit here with two caps. One is that we, we are service function, as a, a service function for the traders, where we secure competitive reliable freight. So that's the one cap. And then the other cap is the fact that we, we run as a profit center by ourselves, uh, as, a, as a wet freight book. Uh, in terms of uh, extracting value from volatility, uh, definitely, it's a space where we are quite active. Uh, in terms of looking back, I mean, having said that, uh, the market has not been offering a lot of opportunities in the last past two years. Uh, the fact is the market has been incredibly weak. Uh, however, as, as both uh, 
uh, Mike and Jason is saying, I mean, there's increased volatility, and with increased volatility, you have more opportunities. Um, in terms of uh, looking back, just a little bit about owners, I mean, what, what they've done, good and bad, uh, uh, in the past years. Uh, I must say here, if you look at 2015, which also has made the life more difficult as an operator on the tanker side, they've been extremely good at protecting the time charter curve. Uh, it's, it's, it's a good achievement by owners. Uh, and and what, what I mean by saying protecting the TC curve, the market may have been 10 and they've been demanding 13, 14. It means most operators, I think, has been uh, decreasing their fleet size. Uh, and then that's a challenge that, that is, is coming into to different freight portfolios uh, within different books around the world. Um, if I look back to, to 2015, it's quite interesting. I mean, the market obviously was uh, incredibly firm at that point of time. Uh, we all enjoyed enjoyed that. I think everybody here on this panel as well. Um, if I look back, I'll make a statement, and that I think the market could have been even better back then. And it was almost historically strong. But one of the mistakes I think the owners were making at the time, I mean, obviously everybody was uh, very, very uh, engaged in the contango market and what the contango market brought. Uh, but, but what owners actually failed in that, and, and, and why do I say this now, is because I think if they change the behavior going forward, if a contango market comes back, they, they can help make an even better market. So I, I speak here with two hats, both as a trading company uh, who have an interest in having access to ships to, to put on storage if the contango market comes back, but also as an operator. So what owners were very afraid of back in 2015, owners were quite afraid of giving a ship, I say giving, offering a ship out for time charter, let's say two to three K above market, being afraid of losing the market if it comes. However, if, if, if three to 5% of the fleet goes out on storage, the challenge that you had in 2015 was the fact that as soon as the oil is on board the water, we, people couldn't get it ashore. And that's obviously equal to demand. I give an example in terms of the opportunity back then, and this is from our own trading system where we had an LR2. We loaded in Rotterdam, it went on storage, it went to the US, it turned around back to Europe, turned around to the US, turned south to go to Ecuador, and it ended up 72 days later in Rotterdam. I mean, this is the kind of situation which is completely unexpected, but the fact when oil is allowed to go on, on the water as a, as a storage play, chances are it will not come back near term. So that's sort of a little bit about opportunities and how owners can participate in supporting the market and not being afraid of giving the first giving away or offering out the first ship on time charter. Thank, thank you, Rasmus. Now, George, I'd um, like to follow on Rasmus's comments. Given the current state of the market and future uncertainties dealing with regulatory changes, decarbonization, um, what, what do you think can be done from a charterer's perspective to improve relations with owners to meet these future challenges? Yeah, thank you, Corey. Um, I wouldn't say necessarily improve, but I think um, we think the big changes facing industry require a more collaborative approach between owners and charterers. Um, I think 2020 and the changes required from that are a good example. I mean, we've been working with owners in several areas on, on the 2020 change. We've been looking at the transition plans, so that involves tank cleaning, what needs to be done there, preparing the, the vessels for use of compliant fuels. That's not a an easy thing to do and requires a charter we need to manage the fleet because they will have to go 
um, off hire or into dry dock or at least um, be stable for a while to, to clean tanks. We've also been working with them testing compliant fuels. I mean, there aren't a lot out there, particularly of the blends, but what's there we've been testing in labs and we're also looking to work with owners to test on board ships to make sure that they're, they work, that the owners are happy that they're, they're suitable fuels and also looking at compatibility between fuels, which we think could be um, quite a big problem going forward. Um, we've been working on fuel sourcing, so where will these compliant fuels be available? Um, and if you've got scrubbers, where will high sulfur fuel be available? And obviously, we've also been looking at scrubbers um, in certain cases as a method of compliance. Um, and we've been working with owners there and looking at maybe even financing the scrubber together with them. Um, but I think that's just one example. And I think going forward, there are going to be more examples where owners and charters will have to work together, particularly if you start looking towards the path to a, for a decarbonized industry and the AMO goals that they've set for 2050. At the moment, we try and make our fleet as efficient as possible, but at, at the way we do that at the moment is just looking at the, trying to reduce the average age of our fleet. So I think it's around seven years now. We also use the right ship rating, and we try and get our fleet between the A and, a and D in terms of the energy efficiency rating. But we think there's more that we could do. Um, we'd like to work with owners more closely to try and improve the performance of, of vessels. Um, so not just rely on the guaranteed speed and consumption, but actively work with them to improve how their, how their ships perform for us on long-term charters, whether that's through monitoring, through benchmarking, in other areas. We, we've never had a discussion with an owner about the quality of paint put on a vessel, for example, and that could have a big impact on how well that ship performs over a five-year time charter and other energy-saving devices. Um, we will also, we've recently, some of you may have heard, we launched a, a challenge together with DMV and a company called Rainmaking Denmark looking for technology to reduce greenhouse gas emissions in vessels. And we found lots of very interesting things that have come from that, and we're now moving into the stage of testing and modeling some of these solutions. And again, we will want to work with owners to looking at prototyping and testing some of these things on board. Um, so there's lots we think we can do, and we think we need to refigure that relationship um, for the benefit of both the owner and the charterer going forward. And it's not just in the case of energy efficiency or performance of the vessels. We at Cargill and also we're getting pressure from some of our end users of freight, particularly the miners, around the areas of safety and, and vessel maintenance, et cetera. And I think, um, again, we, we would like to work more closely with owners to try and raise um, the overall quality of, of the fleet, particularly in dry bulk. I think we can learn a lot from the, the tankers in that respect and, and what they've done in terms of driving up the quality of the fleet. Great, thank you. Um, Mike, could I ask you to comment a little bit from the, from the tanker side on this subject? Um, With respect to employing the same strategies or looking at efficient, different type of um, issues of efficiencies going forward? Well, I think that uh, in, in terms of being a, a, a refining major or an oil major, a lot of what we do, um, in addition to having our needs, though, uh, from, from the charter's perspective, we're always looking for the, um, the quality relationship, the long-term relationship. I think that tankers have been around for a while and that over time you build relationships with certain owners and, and, as, and as, as soon as you're in a relationship where you know there's good faith going back and forth, 
um, then you can stay in a relationship and things always go wrong. And the last thing you want to do in shipping is, is jam a contract down somebody's throat or threaten legal action. You, you really try to avoid that. So there's always a way to work things out. And over time, you get into good faith relationships. And some of these relationships go long before I was in the business where there might have been a, a ship owner that was facing a bankruptcy or couldn't make certain payments and, and certain charterers or bunker suppliers, people hung with that, with that ship owner for longer than, than other industries might. And over time, um, that relationship's pretty strong. And, and that's when in a down market that we've recently seen, it seems we're starting to pull up out of the bottom now, but in a down market, you know, the last thing you want to do is, is uh, put an owner in a worse position. So you try to stay flexible. It's a small business. We're all in the business together and we prefer owners to have nice ships. We prefer new ships. We prefer uh, quality crew. So if freight rates are high and owners are making money, we're, we, we enjoy that because then we know we're getting better tonnage. Great. Thank you, Mike. And, um, I'm going to keep you on the hot seat, and we're going to um, look at, start looking at our third topic, which is um, current market trends. When we spoke prior to the forum today, you brought to my attention uh, a very recent and interesting trend where ship demolition is starting to outpace new building. Can you elaborate a bit on, on this and um, give us your perspective on what this recent trend could mean for the market? Yeah, so in shipping, you, you, always, you always have existing fundamentals and, and, the, and the related freight rates. Uh, what, when you're in shipping, you look a little deeper and you look at the shipping cycle, and a shipping cycle is nothing more than a business cycle, but it's very exaggerated. It's extremely exaggerated. You've heard the word volatility at least three or four times today. So within that exaggeration uh, of the freight rates, you get, you get extreme, everybody buys ships, everybody uh, scrap ships. So the, the, the trend that I think is, is important is, and a lot of signals are showing we're at the bottom, maybe slightly out of the bottom for an upturn, is that we're seeing more ships being scrapped than are being ordered in a given month. It's been three or four months of that. It's not, it's not a huge imbalance. It's not just a one way where everything's being scrapped and no one's ordering, but it tells you that there's pessimism. Uh, a lot of pessimism, which is great news if you're if you want to get a, a market bottom before things turn. It doesn't mean it will turn. It just suggests that the pessimism factor is pretty large right now, in that you do not see a lot of ordering and people that are struggling to to hit their break-even costs. They're actually scrapping their ships at 19 or 20 years old. So the next thing to look for. If there is increased scrapping, if, if you start seeing 18 and 17-year-old ships, once the 17-year-old ships start getting scrapped, that, that might be a sign of max, maximum pessimism. And if you follow shipping cycles, that, that indicates you've you got a pretty good bottom in place and that things should get better from there for a few years. Thank you, Mike. Um, Jason, following on um, Mike's response, can you discuss briefly what you see as some of either the advantages or disadvantages of employing capital in an asset light market given current trends? Sure, I think you know, the, the obvious disadvantage is when someone looks at um, deploying capital on time charters or any kind of asset light um, alternative shipping investment, they do not get to participate in, in you know, the asset upside, the hard asset and in the appreciation and the value of, of, of a ship. Um, very different than going out to acquire a ship um, and, and obviously looking at OPEX considerations, various CAPEX considerations, particularly relevant in this point in time. When you go in time charter a ship, it has, um, you know, distinct advantages. I mean, one, it's 
directly correlated to the underlying markets and to the underlying earnings of that market. So it allows investors, um, as well as ourselves, to, to express a view that they feel though the, the market is, is bottomed or at least undervalued. Um, and allows them to deploy capital, um, very low, uh, very light amount of capital, um, which is highly leveraged against market conditions. Um, it's a defined duration. So a lot of investors quite frustrated during the last cycle of their uh, inability to unlock um, their capital because um, they were holding art assets that either could not be sold or didn't like the valuations at any point in time. Time Trader allows them to participate in the market in a defined duration, oftentimes has options at the end of the charter, free optionality, um, which for some reason in our industry is wearing a ship owner's hat. We're, we're still very keen to give free options uh, to charters. Um, so it allows investors and ourselves to take advantage of that. Um, you know, in addition, um, it's, it's, it's a small amount of capital um, to basically allow you to, to participate in the market against, uh, rather than going out and acquire uh, a very capital intensive asset. So, you know, those are some of the advantages, um, but it really does start and end with, um, with taking a proper view on the market, where you think the fundamentals are, um, and stepping into the market in that point in time. Um, but if, if taking a very calculated approach, um, you know, either within segments within a certain sector or amongst different sectors, um, you're able to achieve a very correlated product um, to underlying to the underlying market and the earnings associated with it. Thank you. Um, following up, I would ask if uh, George, maybe you can comment um, from the dry cargo side on on some of these issues. Yeah, sure. I, I think um, from a cargo point of view, we run a very similar operation to Trafigura in, in the way it's set up. So yes, we do have our own cargo cargo we need to carry, and we provide that service to the, the other physical desk, but that's only 20% of what we carry today, of the 200 plus million tons we carry each year. Only 20% is cargo cargo, the rest is all for third parties. Um, but we are a profit center, and we're expected to make money whether the market goes up or whether it goes down. We, we run a, a hedge book, so we use the tools uh, at our disposal, whether it's derivatives, whether it's physical cargoes, physical ships, to take a view on the market. And if, we, if we're positive, we will be long, and if we're not so positive, we'll be short. And we have to manage the, um, the book um, depending on what the analysis um, that we do tells us. So uh, we've run a very, that's why, again, we like the, the time charter model. It gives us the flexibility to, to ride both the ups and the downs in the market. And we're not locked into a a long only, or, or as the case may be, a short only position. We, we have to remain flexible to, to maximize the, the returns that we give the corporation. Thank you, George. Um, going down the line, Rasmus, um, can you comment on this from your perspective, from Trafigur's perspective? Uh, yes, I definitely can. Uh, I'll just go one step back in terms of the market fundamentals. Sure. A bit before, and uh, uh, I was out running this morning, and uh, one of the lyrics was "Walking with good intentions," and uh, I think the tanker market has good intentions. We just have yet to see it come, and uh, there can be many reasons for for the tanker market coming. Uh, again, just going back to the volatility and and what drives it, and uh, I think Iran at the moment is is one of the key drivers in the crude market. Um, so, so just to round that up, and and um, I mean, and and why Iran? I mean. Nobody seems to dare sourcing from Iran, which is different from last time there were sanctions on Iran. So now crude is being sourced from the US, from WAF, from Red Sea. Uh, the Iranian fleet, we don't know what's happening. 
as of last week, 17 AIS transponders were turned off out of a VLCC fleet of 38 ships. So the question mark is whether this is a one-off event, and then, of course, when, when does sanctions stop? I don't have a view on that, but uh, it's just one of these jokers in the tanker market that it could carry on for a short period, it could carry on for a longer period. Um, anyway, so how, to, how, how do we deal with that as Trafigura and strategies, etc.? Yeah, it's, it, again, as I said before, it's been a very difficult market to be an operator in uh, because owners have done so well protecting the TC curve. Uh, so from our side, we, we've gone very short. Uh, if I go back to 2015, we had 110, 115 ships on TC, and now I define TC duration longer than three months. And as of today, that's 36 ships. Uh, if I go 12 months forward, we have uh, a core fleet of eight MRs that was sold and leased back, and then plus our new building project of 35 ships, uh, which is a, an equity light uh, way of uh, procuring uh, our future fleet. Uh, we went with the Chinese leasing houses, Mr. Fang, who's here on the panel later today, um, and, and extracted value from the credit of, of having a, a large corporate and a trading house behind. Uh, so, so that has been our strategy, go short while we go long. But there's 18 months where we have had a very minor presence in the market compared to the past. Uh, we didn't, one thing I would say, we didn't anticipate the market would be as low as it has been. Uh, oil market dynamics, again, contrary to 2015, has been uh, very uh, non-existent, uh, and that has hurt the tanker market quite significantly, and probably more significantly than what people think. Yeah. Thank you. Um, we do have uh, a few minutes left. We might open up for questions. Anybody has anything? Oh, great. Yes. I'll just repeat the question. What do you think is going to be the availability of low sulfur? Low sulfur fuel oils and compliant fuel oils starting in 2020. Yes, so this speaks to the IMO 2020 issue, the low sulfur issue. Um, I, I would say that the, the first, the most obvious point is that even if you install a scrubber, which makes a lot of sense on the larger ships, that you always can't be sure that there will be high sulfur available. People forget that. Uh, what people need to understand uh, is that the, not all ports are gonna be carrying the high sulfur because the demand for it will be greatly reduced. So other than your major major shipping hubs, uh, or bunker hubs, Houston, Fujairah, Rotterdam, Singapore, and there will be others, but you might be in a situation where you put a scrubber on and you're still buying the more expensive low sulfur because the high sulfur is not available. For general availability, there's a wide range of predictions there. There's there, the, the original study that IMO went with said that there, there could be enough low sulfur produced. There was another competing study that said a, a fair amount will not, there, there will be a shortage of it. And that's the key to the whole scrubber economics. I know it was discussed last panel or before that. It will be discussed later today. The biggest issue in the whole to put a scrubber on or not is, is usually that, that spread between the high sulfur price and the low sulfur price. If the spread is small, your scrubber isn't as justified as if you have a wide spread, then you can invest many millions of dollars in a scrubber and you can capture that back on fuel savings. From, from our research, I mean, 
the, the in-house view is that there will be enough of compliant fuel. Um, I think the big challenge will be for operators and owners, I mean, uh, the bunker procurement. Uh, it's a huge uh, challenge. Uh, there's a lot of extra money to be saved if you manage to get this right. Uh, so a lot of focus, at least in our organization onwards, will, will be around the bunker procurement and the communication uh, between the commercial teams and the bunker teams and operations. It, it's becoming more demanding. Great. Well, I see our time is um, running down quickly. Um, I'd like to thank the panelists for a job well done. Um, thank you for your efforts. And uh, you can find us milling about if you have any further questions. Thank you.